Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Monash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Ely, Nevada. Welcome to the show, Travis Godin. Thank you, Victor. Good to be here. Great to have you here. Now, Travis, you and I have got to know each other over the last several years, and I love what you're doing. You're in a very rural part of Nevada. When people think of Nevada, they think first of flashing lights. And I remember the first time you and I met, I think I used the word acres in the sentence, and you corrected me. You said, no, out here we measure in square miles. So tell me a little bit about your part of the state. Uh, Yeah, Victor, just very high desert, uh, rural part of the state, very uh, mining-centric and agriculture-based. Yeah, very not populated whatsoever and a good place with uh, lots of room to do something. You're in a particular asset class that is not on a lot of people's radar, although it's in the news these days because certainly the administration in Washington is looking about making big investments in the realm of solar. And you got into this business specifically of solar farms quite some time ago. Yeah, that's correct. Got in about uh, 2016 on the real estate side, the ground lease specifically underneath these large solar farms that large institutional sized companies come in and build up. Now, when you first got into the business, you're a young guy, you're in your early 20s, and you didn't have a lot of cash to go buy land or anything like that. You used a very clever approach to somehow get in the game with very little resources. Yeah, absolutely, Victor. What I was able to do was uh, strike up a joint venture, if you will. I had the contacts uh, in the space that I had developed, and then I partnered with a very large landowner. So basically, what we did is I brought the, the tenant, if you will, and he brought the land that was, wasn't was producing him any income at that time, and we just joined up from there and split out the lease revenue, and it's been a good fit for both of us. At this point, now that you've been at it a few years, how many acres or square miles have you actually leased up for solar? In all total, I've probably done about 20,000 acres in uh, transactions, and, and some fall off, et cetera, for different things that come up with the project. So right now, just off the top of my head, I think we're around uh, 8,000 acres eight to 10,000 acres that we have currently leased up. That's amazing. So when you look for a site that's ideal or perfect for solar, apart from having sunshine, what do you look for? Uh, Yeah, you want a site that's generally flat speaking, no major flooding issues. The soils can't can't be on a rock pile, has to be soil that can be worked with. You need it obviously by large transmission, substations, all that kind of stuff. Need a way to be able to access the site. So those are just a few of the high, high level things you want to look for. Solar technology's changed dramatically over the last 20 years, and there's been this, let's say, goal of a buck a watt has been kind of the target that the entire industry has been focused on for for a long time, and we're pretty much there at this point, especially a lot of the lower-cost panel suppliers out of Asia. Apart from the cost of the panels, where's the investment go in these particular projects? Yeah, I mean, a big chunk, you know, aside from that is your what they call the interconnect. So when solar developer comes, they have to negotiate and pay a certain price to upgrade the grid, hook into the grid, wherever their plant's going to be. So that that's usually huge. That's what makes or break a project. If the interconnect's too large, project becomes economic. So it's a fine line there. So that takes up a lot of your cost. Pretty much after that is is the panels and, and the physical infrastructure and then, you know, permitting, land cost, et cetera, down from there. Now, back in the day, it used to be the case that there were lots of government subsidies because the economics didn't work naturally, but they did work with the subsidies. A lot of those subsidies have disappeared or are coming back in a different form. What's your perspective on, on that side of the business? Yeah, I mean, it hasn't with where the technology's at now. The, the cost is low enough to 
in most areas of the country compete with, you know, your, your conventional resources. So that doesn't play in as much. Obviously, it's just like anything. If there, there's tax incentive, it's going to drive more capital in the space and make it more competitive. It doesn't really matter at, at this point, the industrial shift and maneuver, whatever the case may be. Are there certain sizes of projects that make sense, you know, below a certain size? It's too small. It, it's not worth even the infrastructure or the licensing costs. What's the granularity? Are you measuring this in megawatts, gigawatts? Yeah, the, the industry goes by megawatts on the utility side. Nowadays, everything, they want to go as, as big as possible. So call it 50 megawatts on the, the low end. Generally, they a lot would be like to be up by two or 300 megawatts. We have some that are up to 500 megawatts. There's other projects in the country that are being built that are up to a thousand. So it's, you know, the bigger, the better economics of scale. Generally, you know, you need 500 acres and above to make something look attractive. So a 50 megawatt plant, how many houses would that power? Off the top of my head, uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure where the math comes out, but I deal at acres. So that one there's roughly 400 acres of ground, 50 megawatt uh, plant would take up. So, you know, you can, you can imagine, uh, on up from there, how, how ginormous these things get. So, Absolutely. And are there any restrictions apart from the topography doesn't lend itself well? Are, are there other things to worry about? For example, maybe uh, reflection and impact on habitat and things like that that you have to worry about? So yeah, they all do your basic environmental studies as you would with, with any other project. There is a wildlife component that gets studied. So all that's taken into account. Obviously, it's better if there's nothing much else around you you just in your local planning, you're going to face more uphill battle if you're on the outside of town and you're still right next to some sort of housing track. So it's better just to be out uh, in Nevada. We have a lot of federal land. So most of the projects that, that I have are, are on private within this federal land. So there's not any development around most of them. So it makes usually, generally speaking, the, the local and planning process at that level pretty smooth. If you're sitting on, let's say, 500 or 1,000 acres and you're a landowner and thinking about getting into this business... What kind of revenue stream could you be thinking about on a, say, a per acre basis? Yeah, for sure. At the beginning, most of these are structured as an option to lease, which means generally the first five years of the deal up to that point, you know, they're, they're studying. It takes a couple of years to get all your grid studies back from the utility, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, those first five years, nothing's happening to your property, but you're looking anywhere from, you know, $15 an acre a year up to $30, $40, $50 an acre a year, just depending exactly where you're at in the country and, and the makeup of your property. So then once, assuming all the boxes get checked and they build the project, at that point, once again, depending on where you're in the country, you're looking at land rates from 450 up to six, 650, possibly even more, seven, 700 or so per year on a lease rate. And then what you can do, there's a lot of REITs and hedge funds and folks that like to come in and buy that out. They'll pay a multiple around 15X or so, depending on who the backers of the project are. Most of them are institutional at this point, so get a pretty pretty nice multiple there. Or like I like to do is just refinance and pull your good chunk of cash out against that longer lease that's now in place and go do something again. I love that. So a 15 times multiple, like th that's like a 6.5%, 6.6% cap rate, correct? Yep. And your first term of the leases is generally 25 years, and then there's extension for another 25 years. So they're not buying. It's not like a... Every year, you're kind of, in a way, uh, spending that money's kind of getting spent down. So that's why your your cap rate's not as high as some of these other assets. Is uh, There's an end to it, possibly. That's why you see a little bit higher rate there than some of your conventional assets. Are there some states that lend themselves better 
to solar projects and others where it's maybe a more friendly environment or more bureaucratic environment that you decide you want to stay away from? The states, there is obviously differences in each one of them. Where it comes more to, though, is how the utility is designed in the state. Nevada, for example, uh, Nevada Energy, which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway, they're the sole player in the space. They buy all the electricity. You know, they're, they're the they're the guys to go to, whereas Texas, it's all open, so you can sell power to basically anyone in Texas, do all kinds of creative deals. Texas has a lot of more open people to go to just because they're just how their utility is is designed from a retail perspective. They have all these different wholesalers and stuff in Texas, electric wholesalers, and then they just have what they call poles and wires company, where there's just a couple entities that maintain the maintain the infrastructure, and then you as a retailer or wholesaler would you have to pay a certain fee to, to use that. So that's really where you see the biggest differences is on the actual utility side, how the strategy has to work. There are different things here and there with, with the states, but for the most part, a lot of the states are pretty pro-development as far as solar, solar and, you know, the wind The wind is, is behind your back in this space. You know, one, one reason I, yeah, dived into it five years ago. I love it. Now, when you're talking about transmission lines, that usually means some form of easement or servitude for that infrastructure to cross somebody's property, how often is that an obstacle to getting your project actually even entitled? It's project to project. So, I mean, generally the, the best is if the transmission line is already crossing the property or the, or the substation sitting near the property. In Nevada, usually when you got to cross, it means you're dealing with the Bureau of Land Management, the federal land. So the wise thing is just to start that process as soon as you get the project it's slow and takes a couple of years, but your interconnect study that we talked about earlier takes about the same time. So generally, you just run those down a parallel path and you can get your easement and be on your way. But yeah, definitely project to project. That's a huge thing you need to look into because yeah, if you can't get to the line, it's it's no good. So Fantastic. Well, Travis, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? I have uh, LinkedIn, so just reach out to me there at Travis Godon, G-O-D-O-N, and just let me know you heard me on Victor's podcast, and we'll link up. I love the perspective, love what you're doing. It's a fast-growing, fast-paced part of the industry. And so for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Travis at Travis Godon on LinkedIn. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow.